Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this episode, Artists Union of England co-chair Zita Holborn on why we need a cultural renewal, Mel Sims asks what are we organising for, and Josiah Mortimer has his radical roundup. Hello, 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 and welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union show. I'm Simon Sapper, and I'm really pleased to tell you all about what we've got coming up in the next half hour or so. Our featured guest this time round is Zita Holborn, co-chair of the Artists Union of England, but also extremely and deservedly well known for being vice chair of PCS and co-founder of Barrack, Black Activists Rising Against the Cuts. It seems strange to be talking to Zita about artists' union stuff when arguably much bigger, more important, more profound issues uh, to consider. But actually, if the AUE doesn't speak for artists, who will? So really good to shine a spotlight on an area that probably needs it more than most, more than most. We've also got Mel Sims, uh, as ever, nailing it by posing the question, what are we organising for? The answers, as ever, may well surprise you. We've got Josiah Mortimer's Radical Roundup. Great stories from around the Labour movement, which you probably won't get to read about in the mainstream media. Well, you will because he looks at the Pegasus software that busts any notion of confidentiality wide open. He also goes into shocking survey results from the Baker's Food and Allied Workers Union about the extent of food poverty in the UK and gives an update on disputes involving the UCU and Unite the Union's attempts to save manufacturing at Barn Oldswick. But the big story has got to be the understandable fury, outrage, disbelief by GMB union members working for the NHS, uh, amongst other unions whose members work for the NHS, at the government's announcement that health and social care workers will be exempt from self-isolation if they're pinged by the NHS app. Uh, One rule for you and another for me, you might say. We'll also be bringing news of an in-depth report from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, who have revealed that thousands of care jobs are paid below the living wage, despite promises to the contrary uh, from employers and those who commission the care. All that, of course, coming up later on in the show. First, though, and for the final time this series, it's Professor Mel Sims from the University of Glasgow with her Thought for the Week. This time, she asked the question, what are we organising for? Because if you don't know what you're organising for, how do you know if you're ever going to be successful? Here's Mel. Some time ago, I wrote a paper asking the question, what are we organising for? It was a short, polemical piece that made a plea for collective worker power to be conceptualised in political and class terms, something that's often missing from practical handbooks on union organising, as well as surprisingly from a lot of the academic literature in the field. 
And I stick to my answer that organising must surely be about collective power within and between groups of workers. But what's interesting is how often that question is left out of wider discussions of union organising. And I certainly don't expect everyone to agree with my answer. But I do think that we need to be clear about what our answer is if we're to be able to evaluate organising activity in any meaningful way. If a particular organising campaign is about winning a specific concession from a workplace, then we need to plan towards that and work out what levers will help us get to that objective. If it's about building wider strength to counter particular initiatives and developments, maybe in a specific sector or industry, then again, we need to be clear about that. The alternative is that even if it's successful, each campaign and workplace is organised as an island of trade unionism in a sea of non-unionism. The likelihood of being able to sustain any specific outcome is inevitably going to be limited and potentially undermined by that wider sea of non-unionism. So while it's often scary, and I think sometimes even terrifying, to be explicit about what we're actually doing this for, we can't dodge that question. It's not honest to how we use members' money. It's not honest to workers about what they might or might not be able to expect as a result of engaging with a specific campaign or mobilisation. And it's also not honest to the wider trade union movement about what we stand for and what we're trying to achieve. So my mission this summer is to get more trade unionists to ask what are we organising for and how do we know if we've got there? Well, thanks very much for that, Mel. I mean, that, you know, as ever with Mel's pieces, it really does make you think, mm, yeah, the concept of lots of disconnected islands of trade unionism, as Mel described them, really, uh, really powerful and challenging stuff too. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our featured guest for this episode. Zita Holborn actually needs no introduction to just about everyone who's listening to this podcast, I, I guess, and a phenomenal record of, of contribution and achievement over 20 years or, or so. Uh, Vice President of PCS, co-founder of Barrack, author, vocalist, civil rights activist. I was delighted to, to welcome her on, onto the show and particularly to talk about her role as co-chair of the Artists' Union for England, not an organisation that is desperately high profile, generally speaking, although very well known in the art world and not an area that receives enough attention, which, as we shall find out, is not a fair reflection on the work that is done by the AUE. Uh, Zita Holbam, you're very, very welcome to the Union Jews podcast. Thank you for, for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Much well, appreciated. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. And I mean, listeners will know you as chair and co-founder of, of Barrack and as a vice president of, of PCS. But we're here today to talk about your, your, your work with the Artists' Union of England, for whom you are one of the joint national chairs, I understand. That's correct, yes. Um, so, so, why do you think now there's an appetite for trade unionism amongst artists where there doesn't seem to have been one before what's changed i think there probably always has been but the way artists work because most of them are self-employed and running their own practices it may not have even occurred to them that you know that they could join a union or they could form a trade union um so i think the artists have been aware for a long time, you know, of the kind of exploitation and bad treatment that they receive at times, um, you know, from employers or through the contracts that they, they gain. But I think in terms of the artists that decided to um, set up 
uh, AUE and this Dublish AUE in the first place, we're talking about a period where we were in a decade of austerity, which was having disproportionate impacts on people working in the arts and the culture sector. We've now been hit by the, the pandemic, which has made things even harder. And, you know, one, our sector is one of the sectors that's hardest hit. So I think it's probably more about people not knowing where to go. Or, or what to do. And I think artists have always organised themselves in other ways, even before we had uh, a union. And there was, of course, uh, an artist union in Scotland before ours yes. was established yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite encouraging in in a way, isn't it, that there is a, a, a trade union consciousness, I, I suppose, because in other sectors you see people forming networks or groups or whatever, but increasingly you do see, particularly in the creative sector, people saying, no, I want a union, and a union has a particular identity and, uh, and a law. So what, what's the kind of range, the breadth of, of occupations and skills that, that your members and potential members will, will have? So we're primarily um, a union for visual artists, but that can include some artists that are working in in. Uh, moving image and sound because of course visual artists are not just you know painters mm. they're a broad range of things and often you know they're, they're multidisciplinary artists yeah. as well our members are you know quite poor struggling artists artists who work with communities who work in human rights who work to make society better in education as well Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, you know, the subscriptions, I think, are something like 45 quid a year, something, something like that, which show, 42, shows, yeah. 42, which yeah. shows I suppose, the affordability, the affordability question being answered. Is there is there an overlap? Is there a kind of like, if you like a soft border between what some of your members may do at almost the, the edge of the range of occupations and what people like back to members do? Or, or, or is, it, is there a clearer demarcation line? Well, in some ways, there is a clear there is a clear line because, of course, Spectre members are working in broadcasting. You know, musicians union members are musicians, and equity members are um, actors. But I myself am a multidisciplinary artist, so I'm an author, I'm a writer, I'm a vocalist, a poet, as well as being a visual artist and curator. So there will be members that cross over, and I think some members may be, you know, some of our members may be uh, a member of more than one union yeah. because of the, the crossover of their work. So it's not always easy to define it and, you know, say you, you specifically fit into this category or that that category, but primarily we are for visual artists. Right, right. And, and, and it's, AU, is, as you were saying, is a young union uh, established uh, in 2014, I, I think. How, how has it developed since then? I mean, membership has grown steadily year, year, on, year on year. But um, I think the whole notion of, of a head office or getting a stable executive committee, I mean, that's quite challenging when you're starting out and, and the numbers, the membership numbers aren't that great. It is really challenging. And it's been interesting for me personally, because of course, I'm involved in a union that is established and yes. established many yeah. decades before my involvement in it. So going from that, we, I took for granted that we had all these staff and headquarters and regional offices and all sorts of resources to having absolutely nothing and effectively, you know, completely dependent on running on people power because we don't have a yeah. premises you know, we don't have any paid staff and that sort of thing. So we have to do everything ourselves. So it is a challenge. 
sometimes it's a bit like a chicken and egg situation that you need more members in order to have the funding to establish those things, <laughs> but you need those things to build the membership, membership. and organise. So it is a challenge and it is a struggle. And whilst we were established in 2014, officially, you know, declared a union, it takes a, a few years just to get off the ground and to start to build some structures. And, you know, we affiliated to the General Federation of Trade Unions. We affiliated to the TUC. That's, a you know, a process you have to go through, trying to build some, some structures, trying to get people engaged and wanting to be involved, as you said, on our, our National Executive Committee. And because of the nature of artists' work, you know, we do have a turnover on our um, National Executive Committee because people may get projects and work and they need to focus on that because they need to earn a living because, you know, it's precarious as it is. And so they may have to step down for a while but to focus on the work that they've got um, coming in and they're trying to balance running their practices and most of us you know we we have well we obviously have art practices because we wouldn't be eligible to be members yeah. in the first place but we may also have a day job on top of that and so we're trying to juggle everything so you know we're making steady progress and I think we punch above our weight for a small union we're trying to make our presence felt and heard and we're representing members, but there is a lot to do. And of course, you know, our primary concern is our members. If our members are coming to us and they have issues and disputes that they need us to represent and support them through, then that can take up a lot of resource and time. And of course, unions by their very nature can be quite reactionary. You want to be strategic and plan for the future, but you're having to react to what's happening in the there and now, like the pandemic, for example. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But it, it strikes me that that things like, say, the Good Practice Charter, which is a very, a very impressive uh, doc- document, if I may say so, but but that is that's an example of something that is servicing and organising at the same time. Because obviously, if if employers and commissioners sign up to the Good Practice Charter, as I know a number ha- a number have, then that's delivering for the me- for the members. But on the other hand, knowing that the union is involved in setting standards in the sector will be a draw that will that will be a tool in organising. Is that is that a fair assessment? And, and on the Good Practice Charter itself, how did it how did it come about, and how has it been received? Yeah, having some standards that employers or businesses that are, you know, using the services of artists adhere to is really crucial and important so that they're not exploited, they're not um, mistreated and they're not underpaid and they have safe environments to work in. So the Good Practice Charter came about because uh, one of our key organisers in the Union Trees at Eastern, who also was the former secretary and founding member, she um, did a sort of research project when she went on um, a TUC organiser academy um, course around having a good practice charter. And so it grew from there. And so there is a committee that oversees the work of the good practice charter. And there are six principles, which include things like equality and health and safety and, and, you know, being treated fairly. And employers and businesses are asked to sign up to those principles and sign up to the charter. What we have, where we're in quite a unique position when you compare to a lot of the big unions where they are dealing with employees, 
where there are recognition agreements with employers, most of our members aren't employed in that kind of yeah. way. They might be on yeah. temporary contracts or commissions and that sort of thing. So they don't have the same status and they don't have the same employment rights. Whilst they're protected under health and safety and equality laws, they don't have all the other things that an employee would have. So this seeks to address those issues that are missing for artists. And I mean, from the way you've, you've described it, any reasonable employer would, or commissioner would look at it and think, well, there's nothing. You know, why, why wouldn't I want to be associated with with good stands in the in the industry? But I, 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 you know, I get I guess there are some people who don't quite see it, see it that way. And they're the harder nuts to crack, as it were. Absolutely. And we do every day with members cases where they're saying that they have been exploited by businesses who want them to produce work for free, renege on contracts, don't set out proper contracts, setting up terms and conditions, are really not treating artists fairly and actually are sometimes also discriminating against them Mm. on equality grounds. So there are a huge number of issues and ideally we'd like to reach a stage where we have that collective bargaining. So, for example, I've been to Canada and spoken at the Artist Union conference uh, there, and they have managed to secure, and they've been established a lot longer than us, they've been around for for decades and decades, um, recognition agreements, you know, through local government in cities, which protects artists, and that's really what we need in place. But the Good Practice Charter sets to address some of those issues. And obviously, we have had some businesses sign up, but we need a lot more to sign up and we need to work on organising um, to get that, that yeah, buy-in. So it becomes a virtuous cycle, though, doesn't it? Because the more that sign up, the greater the momentum behind the push for universally decent decent standards. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you, you, you absolutely understand the difficulty in thinking strategically when there is so much local representational work to be done. But what are the strategic objectives for the union over the next two two to three years? Really, our key objectives are set on an annual basis. So we have an annual general meeting. It is a motion-based AGM, usually. So that would set our policy. This year, we did things differently. We've had all the challenges of COVID. Yeah. And we ran some workshops at our AGM to focus on our priorities. So some of the issues that we are focused on, certainly for the year ahead, is of course the impacts of COVID and how that impacts on studio space, health and safety, pay, accessibility, um, you know, sustaining our sector. Um, So that's a a key priority. We've also looked at universal basic income. Mm, mm. One of the things we found with the pandemic, and actually we've been campaigning, you know, since the pandemic hit us, we tried to lobby the government because we felt that we fell between the cracks when it came to government measures measures to support people. In fact, they left all self-employed people out at the beginning, if you recall, Mm. and then through lobbying and campaigning, they included. But for a lot of our members, because they work part-time for an employer and they're part-time self-employed, it meant they fell between the cracks. You also had to show evidence of your self-employed income and papers, you know, going back a certain period. So if, for example, you were a new graduate or you're just starting off in your art practice, you wouldn't have that evidence. So we think that there has to be better support 
for artists when they fall on hard times or to balance their their um, financial support when they haven't got work coming in. And of the, the Good Practice Charter is one of our priorities and also building our activist base, so yeah. mobilising and organising. But we also have an interest, like all unions do, in international issues, in human rights issues, in equality issues that go beyond just things that impact on our members. That's quite important as a union to stand up for the rights of all people who face injustice or inhumanity. Yeah, I mean, but at the core of it, your members are involved in something that comes under the banner of like freedom of expression, don't they? And, and, and that is severely curtailed in, in far too many places around the world. So there's a clear, I would say there's a clear uh, connection with, with internationalism be, be, because... In the same way that people talk about the pandemic and 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 they say actually it's not over until it's over for everyone you know you you if you if you have a little kind of cesspit of oppression here you know it can easily have a toxic effect uh spreading out spreading out from it so it's encouraging that actually your 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 members who necessarily a lot of them are involved in 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 very uh, kind of solitary process a solitary Mm. but creative process recognizing the the importance of solidarity not just within borders but across borders as, as well because we are socially engaged artists mm. then that is the the core you know of our, our practices as artists so we will be focused on supporting vulnerable people for example working with refugees working on equality projects working on education practices art crosses borders or art has no borders mm. and mm. actually brexit poses an issue you know um, coming out of the EU does create an issue for us because we expect and um, want to be able to cross borders with our art but we find actually we may be priced out now because of the current situation that applies for us going out of the country as well as in of course we're in a different situation because of the pandemic at the moment anyway but we do need a cultural recovery and that's a, a key thing and outside of um, AUE, I have written one for Public Services International, which is an international right. trade union body. Mm. And, you know, it's really important going forward that artists aren't left behind. But also all of the things that we faced before the pandemic hit us, precarious work, low pay, you know, mistreatment, inequality, discrimination and barriers addressed going forward into um, a, co- a recovery strategy yeah absolutely absolutely and 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 it occurs to me that that the problems that your members and many others in the creative sector had by falling through the gaps in the support schemes during the pandemic if there was a a, a view that universal basic income is is a good thing and should be implemented and has been implemented that that would have that would have resolved that that wouldn't mm. have happened then would it i mean do, do, i mean do you see synergies between the other things that you have done or, or that you do do, the, the PCS work, the, the Barrett work, and and, and, and and AUER? You know, I imagine, you know, you can take you can take examples of organising and campaigning from one to another. But but are there are there synergies in terms of the policies and the approaches and and the the objectives? Absolutely, I, you know, I would bring socialist values and equality at the heart of everything into all the roles I do. In my work as a multidisciplinary artist, in my work as a human rights campaigner, in my work as a community activist and in my work as a trade unionist, 
at the heart of that is striving for equality, freedom, justice and human rights. So there's definitely crossover and members of the PCS include workers in the National Museums and Galleries and Historic yeah. Palaces. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they are working in the arts and culture sector and are also being hit disproportionately by cuts, by austerity, by discrimination and by the pandemic. So there's a definite crossover. And of course, the work that Barrett does is focused on racism and race discrimination. And way before I was involved in AUE, I was running campaigns that challenge uh, racism in the arts and culture sector. So there's definite crossover and connection uh, between everything we do. Our struggles are all connected anywhere globally. Yeah, yeah, I I, I share that view. I'm always, I'm, I'm always almost dumbfounded when I when I encounter people who take such such an insular almost silo based view that seems to say actually everything's contained in this block here and there's there's no interconnectivity I just I don't see how that can possibly be the be, be the case Zita it's been wonderful talking to you thank you so much for giving us an insight into the AUE and your 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 work in it it's uh it's a it's a great story it's a necessary story I have, I have to say so so I wish uh, I wish the AUE all the best in the in, in the in the future that's really appreciated and thank you once again for having me on well thank you very much thanks very much indeed for that zeta and as you'd expect from someone with zeta's wide range of experience some really interesting points that came out of that i love the idea of a good practice charter being simultaneously something that's good for servicing and good for organizing uh, i'm sure lots of us can empathize with the challenge of needing to think strategically when actually you've got a million and one bushfires burning all around you that you've got to put out first. And then there's the whole idea about the interconnection between art and artists and a whole range of other occupations and the importance and relevance of the debate on a universal basic income. And if you think about the strapline for the Artists' Union of, of England, which is industry without art is brutality you can understand why it actually adds value and it's cost effective particularly in those sort of occupations to have a wage floor that you get as a result of being a citizen of the country all really interesting stuff and Zita was typically modest in terms of some of the contributions she's she's made and is making to the debate. She referred to the the PSI, the Public Services International paper, you know, in a very brief brief way. But actually, that was a manifesto for cultural workers, and you can find a link to that paper and some other background stuff about Zita and all the stuff she's done in the companion blog to this podcast, which, as always, you can find on the MakesYouThink.com website in the blog section of that site. Are there other things that you've experienced either in your workplace, in your branch, at a regional, national level that are simultaneously good for organising and servicing? Maybe the distinction between those two things is spurious anyway. I've heard that view articulated before, but let us know what you think. Join the debate. Join the discussion. You can email the show at UnionJews. It makes you think.com. You can follow us on Twitter at JewsUnion. Have your two penneth. Tell us what you think. Now it's time for Josiah Mortimer's Radical Roundup. As usual, Josiah has scoured the country, finding illustrations of union achievement, resistance and organising. And here he is. Thanks, Simon. First up this week, 
GMB members working for the NHS say they're appalled by the government's announcement on Monday that health and social care workers will be exempt from self-isolation, but only to go to work after being pinged by the NHS app. Double vaccinated frontline NHS and social care staff in England who've been told to self-isolate will be permitted to attend work in so-called exceptional circumstances under the government's plans. But Holly, a mental health nurse from London, said the decision shows how little regard the government has for frontline workers' safety and well-being. She added that the staffing crisis is desperate and this policy was being used to plug the gaps. The GMB is concerned that forcing otherwise isolating staff into work could harm patients and branded the policy one rule for politicians and another for us. Next up is education news, as members of the University and College Union in 15 further education colleges in England have voted for strike action. Staff are angry that the employer body recommended a pay offer of just 1% in December 2020, a decision that was criticised by staff unions. An overwhelming 89% of UCU members who voted backed strike action on an average turnout of over 62%. UCU said the turnout and vote for action reflected the anger staff feel over having their pay held down for so long. The ballot included many London colleges, including City and Islington, Westminster Kingsway and the College of North East London. After years of UCU's joint campaigning with employers, Further Education won 400 million of increased government investment, 224 million of which arrived in August last year and should have been used for staff pay. But the UCU says it hasn't happened. The pay gap between college and school teachers currently stands at £9,000 a year, as staff working in further education have suffered real-terms pay cuts of over 30% in the last decade. Now, a new study for the Bakers Union has found that almost one in five people run out of food due to lack of money. And 40% had eaten less than they should because of a lack of cash. And one in five have relied on food from friends and relatives. More than 7% had experience of using food banks, the study found. It comes after the publication of the government's national food strategy for England, which the union said failed to deliver the plan needed to tackle hunger. Sarah Woolley, General Secretary of the Bakers and Allied Food Workers Union, said 10 million people across the UK face food poverty. She called for a new right to food law, something not offered in the government strategy. The Bakers Union has branded the government's offer breadcrumbs. Now a major global story, as the National Union of Journalists has condemned attempts to interfere with journalists' private communications, following a major investigation into spying. The union called for journalists to use extra vigilance to protect their data, with the NUJ backing new laws to protect journalists' communications. It follows reports from Forbidden Stories, a worldwide collaborative journalism investigation, revealed that at least 180 journalists across the world have been spied on using Pegasus software, a tool developed by the Israeli cyber surveillance company NSO and sold to a number of clients, including repressive states across the world. The list of 180 journalists targeted includes reporters from global media platforms as well as freelance investigators who appear to have been spied on by regimes determined to uncover sources, undermine research and in some cases stop their reporting. Michelle Stanistreet, NUJ General Secretary, said all concerned with bringing the story into light deserve the highest praise. But if media organisations can obtain such a substantial and detailed cache of information, clearly so can others with less honourable intentions. And last up, a group of specialist engineers employed at the Rolls-Royce plant in Barnoldswick, Lincolnshire, have begun strike action from Monday after fears for the long-term future of the site resurfaced. Members of Unite held a long-running strike before Christmas in opposition to plans to scale back production at the factory, the cradle of the jet engine. Following industrial action, an agreement was reached between Rolls-Royce and Unite which guaranteed the future of the factory. Crucially, they agreed a minimum headcount of 350 workers, 
and a centre of excellence would be built to train the workers of tomorrow. But following a meeting in mid-May, Unite was forced to issue a failure to agree notice with Rolls-Royce as local managers made it clear they were not planning to reach the 350 headcount figure that had been promised. Unite has been attempting to resolve the matter without success, leading workers to return to the picket lines. That's all from this week's Radical Roundup. Catch the full story on leftfootforward.org this Wednesday. Back to you, Simon. Thank you very much indeed. Josiah, one story that didn't make the Radical Roundup but that caught my eye was a new report from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism who have revealed that thousands of care jobs are paid below the living wage despite promises to the contrary from those who employ the care workers or who commission the care packages. The BIJ found that more than 60% of care worker jobs advertised in the last six months, which is more than 7,000 jobs across Britain, were paid less than the real living wage. That was even higher in Wales, where nearly three quarters of all care worker jobs were below the real living wage, despite the fact that the Welsh government recently pledged that all care workers should be paid at that rate. 43 local authorities have signed up to a charter by Unison, in which they, the local authorities, pledged to pay their care workers a real living wage. But the Bureau found jobs advertised for less than that in 37 of those 43 areas, with some offering as little as £8 an hour, which is well below the national statutory minimum wage for those over 21. So well done to the BIJ. Uh, Good story. Well researched. Very, very timely, as the government promises yet again to sort out social care uh, for good. And you can find links to the full report by visiting the companion blog to this website, which is on the makesyouthink.com website. Or you can just type Bureau of Investigative Journalism into Google or any other search engine, and it will take you to the BIJ website. Well, we're nearly out of time uh, for this episode. You'll know, I'm sure, from listening to any previous episode, that Union Jews is part of the Labour Radio Podcast Network, which is a gathering of over 100 uh, local radio and podcast shows, all featuring trade unions and the great work that they do on behalf of their members. You can access any of those shows through the Labour Podcast Radio Network portal, which is labourradionetwork.org. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard over the last half hour or so. I hope it's made you think somewhat. I hope it's given you pause for thought. You can find out more about any of the subjects, all of the subjects we've discussed are, are on the show, by reading the companion blog post that goes with this uh, and every episode uh, of Union Jews. You can find that, as I've said before, and as you must be bored of hearing me say, on the makesyouthink.com website, makesyouthink.com. Look on the blog, but look on the blog section of that website. You will find the companion blog post with links, background, signposting, everything you could possibly need if you want to follow up any of the things that you've heard on the show. You can also join the discussion and we'd be delighted if you would. You can email the show at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. You can subscribe to Union Jews from the podcast platform of your choice. On that, the podcast platform of your choice, you can also rate the show five stars go on you know it's worth it you know it's a good thing if you do nothing else today well thanks for your support anyway it's very much appreciated this in fact is the last episode in the current series but we will have a couple of special episodes over the next two or three weeks one on the match girls dispute and another featuring james farrah the general secretary of the app drivers and courier union one of the so-called new unions about his experiences and views on organising and servicing and taking on Uber. 
In the meantime, my thanks to Mel, my thanks to Zeta, my thanks to Josiah, my thanks above all to you for choosing to spend some of your time listening to the show. And my thanks to all who have contributed to this series of Union Jews over the last 12 weeks or so. I hope I'll see you again for our special episodes, but if not, then sometime in the autumn, sometime further down the road. Until then, stay safe, take care, take care of each other, be kind. And I'll see you next time on Union Jews. Bye for now. The Union Jews podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.